Take your Bibles and turn with me this evening uh, to 1 John chapter 1. Last time we were together in our book sermon, I spent plenty of time emphasizing the purpose of the epistle of 1 John being to draw believers into fullness of joy. And as we considered together at the beginning of that message, this purpose is well established at the very beginning of the epistle. And that's what we're going to consider in detail as we study the first few verses of the epistle today. We're actually going to be looking at it next week and the week after as well as we consider next week uh, the foundations, not just of this epistle as it relates to the introduction, but the foundation of the epistle through, first, uh, through, through the gospel of John. Excuse me. And we've talked about that a little bit in the book sermon, how important it is uh, that we understand the gospel of John and particularly chapters 13 through 17. And then we'll also take a look at the week after that about another question, which is very important for us to understand. We've talked about the purpose of the epistle being to bring us into fullness of joy. The question then is, what is joy? And that's what we'll talk about here in a couple of weeks. So John initiates this letter very abruptly and without any introduction in the classic way that we would expect from one of Paul's epistles. Much to the contrary, John just kind of gets rolling, and as John just kind of gets rolling, we're just kind of going to get rolling as well. So we read in John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. Now, I mentioned last week, but the beginning of this epistle bears a striking resemblance to the beginning of the Gospel of John, which says this in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Now notice here some very key words which correspond between the two writings. And the first one that we find is this word, beginning. John 1 initiates by declaring that the word was in the beginning. First John 1 tells us that he is going to, uh, tells us that what he is going to say, excuse me, is in regard to that which was from the beginning. And in this, we don't just see a similarity, but we also see a difference. In John, the word is said to be in the beginning and is said to be God himself. And John goes on in John chapter 1, verse 14, to state that the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, telling us that the word which John speaks is Jesus Christ, thus introducing us to Jesus, to his purpose, and to his great work, which is, of course, the focus of the gospel of John. Here in 1 John, something a little different is going on. Here, you notice, as we look at 1 John chapter 1, verse 1 again, that John is not introducing the reader to the one who is the word of life, but rather he is telling the reader of the things that are of the word of life. The things which he's about to say are pertaining to the word of life. And this is indicated, of course, by the grammar of the text here in English. Notice that John does not say he who was from the beginning, but that which was from the beginning. And in English, this pronoun reference tells us that John is not referencing a person, but a thing. And we see the same thing in the Greek. Now, the Greek is a little bit different 
in that Greek is a gendered language. Now, the word, the, the concept of gender is one that's been muddied and confused today. In the last couple of generations, gender has referred to something in our culture that is biological, right? The idea of male and female, and now things are getting uh, really crazy as it relates to that in certain subsets, uh, very minor uh, subsets, though very influential subsets of society. However, gender has historically not had anything to do with biology, has not had anything to do with people as it relates to male or female or anything in between, nor has it been a social construct. Gender has been a linguistic term. It is about language. Gender refers to, typically speaking in a language, male, female, and neuter, and these have to do with how words relate to themselves in a sentence. Nothing to do with biology, nothing to do with people say, or directly, intrinsically, it has to do with words and how words relate themselves to each other in a sentence. Now, Greek is a gendered language, and what we find as we dig into the Greek is that the King James translators did a very good job here, that when they translated the that which, it was reflecting that which the gendered language tells us, which is that this text is not talking about a person, the text is talking about a thing, And that is what gender in language is supposed to do. It is supposed to help us understand how these pronouns relate themselves to other things in the sentence by giving us insight into them in this structured way. There's different endings on words based upon their gender. And so here we find that the that which is a good translation, that we are not talking in 1 John chapter 1, verse 1 about a person. We are talking about a thing. But of course, Jesus is not a thing. Jesus is a person. So that adds that then to the question, what is it that we are talking about here? If we are talking about not the word of life himself, that being Jesus Christ, but rather something from the word of life, which John wants his readers to understand, what is it that we are talking about? And this question is answered in verse 2. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life, which was, from, which was with the Father, excuse me, and was manifested unto us. So the thing which of which John speaks, the that which of which John is referencing here is, according to verse 2, the thing which they have heard, the thing which they have seen, the thing which they have looked upon, the thing which they have handled is that eternal life. And then John specifies that this eternal life was with the Father and was manifested unto us. So it was with the Father, it was manifested unto us, and that would certainly be through Jesus And then they have seen it, borne witness to it. They have handled it. They have touched it. They have looked upon it of the word of life. And so the that which is eternal life. And we would say, well, that is Jesus, isn't it, pastor? Doesn't John 14 verse 6 say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Yes, It does. This is true. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is life. But we also understand that Jesus' expression in John 14, 6 is not meant to imply that Jesus is not a man, that Jesus is simply metaphysical, that Jesus is nothing but truth. Jesus was a man. He had a physical body. He had personality, character, and will. He was not just an object. He was not just a metaphysical concept. In other words, 
The idea here is that, yes, Jesus is eternal life in that all life stems from him. He is both the creator and the sustainer of all things. So Jesus is eternal life, but eternal life is not Jesus. Eternal life is something that I have through Jesus, with Jesus being the template, the first fruits, the prototype of this life. So Jesus is eternal life in that all life stems from Christ. But eternal life is not Jesus in that Jesus himself is a man, is a person, is something more than just eternal life. And what John is doing here in 1 John is not reintroducing Jesus, nor is he testifying again of the witness of Jesus's life and ministry, of which he's already covered very plainly in the Gospel of John. Instead, what John is doing here is he is telling the readers what they have experienced regarding the life that they have received through Jesus. They are speaking of that eternal life that they have received in Jesus. Jesus manifested that eternal life to them. It was with the Father. It was from the Father. And then they have experienced it. And that is the testimony of what John speaks of in 1 John. The testimony of what this eternal life of which Jesus spoke is all about? And that's a good question, isn't it? What was this eternal life of which Jesus spoke? Was it just about the life to come? Or does it have a bearing on this life as well? And John boldly declares that this eternal life is something which John, though very much still alive, has already, among others, not only heard about, but tangibly witnessed, has handled in their own lives and they've seen in the lives of others. They bear witness to this eternal life, not just that it's coming, but in themselves. And the question is, what does this tell us? This tells us that when Jesus spoke of eternal life, he was not only speaking of that state into which you will enter and I will enter at the end of our sojourn on this earth if we have accepted Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. But rather, when Jesus spoke of eternal life, he spoke of something that you can experience today. He spoke of something that you can live in today. A life that was with the Father was manifest unto us and of which we can actively bear witness, which we cannot just see and understand, but we can handle we can touch, we can interact with. And that's what John is going to do in this epistle. He's going to bear witness and he's going to tell us how we can have that as well. So verse three says this, that which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that ye also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Now, John has already declared what he had seen and he had heard in relation to Jesus's life, ministry, death, burial, and resurrection. We see that in the Gospel of John. But then the next question becomes, what about the results of that, right? Jesus lived and he taught. And we see the power that Jesus had within his earthly ministry, Jesus taught of that power. Jesus demonstrated in himself that power. Jesus proclaimed the truth. The Spirit testifies of the truth. Certainly we see proof of the truth in the resurrection. But did Jesus' teachings come with any power beyond himself? That's the question. Is the life that Jesus promised a man could experience, is that life real? And is it as powerful as Jesus said it was? 
And of course, the answer to this is absolutely. That life did come with power. Belief on Jesus does come with power. John says, I know it because I have experienced it. I have seen it. I have borne witness to it. My hands have handled it of the word of life. That eternal life, which was from the Father. And not only has he experienced it, but he wants others to experience it as well. And that's what 1 John is about. To that end, he says, that which we have seen and heard declare we unto you. Now, let's take a moment to consider the pronouns at play here. I already gave you a little bit of a language lesson as it related to the nature of gendered languages. Now we get to go back to a grammar lesson. And I've said this many times, uh, more so over the past several months than perhaps I have in the past, but it's because it is an important aspect of when you read your King James Bible that I want you to really get a hold of and I want you to really understand because I think it will help you. And this, of course, is that we see pronoun references slightly unique in the King James Bible. Now, in the first verse, John chapter, 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, John was writing and he was using the pronoun we. He says, that which was from the beginning, that which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. So John is using all first person plural pronouns, we and our here. And from simply that verse, if we were just to have read John, 1 John 1, 1 this evening, we as the readers would assume that the we that John is speaking of is himself and presumably us as the readers, that John is lauding us in with himself and that we all have experienced this thing together. But when we get to verse three, we find that this is not the case. In, in verse three, we see a distinction between the we who have seen and heard these things and the you of the readers. And take note here that it is a you and not a thee. Remember the distinction that is preserved between these in our King James Bibles. We have mentioned already that unlike English, Greek is a gendered language. Gender is a grammatical term, right? Not a biological term. And what gender means is that the language uses different endings, masculine, feminine, and neuter endings to designate how words relate to one another in a sentence. English does not do this, but Greek, among many Greek and Latin-based languages, do. Now, this is not the only distinction in the Greek, however, from the English. Greek is also a more nuanced language as it relates to number. In English, we have a first-person singular and a first-person plural pronoun. First-person singular pronoun, I, me, my. First-person plural pronoun, we, our. In English, we have a third-person singular and a third-person plural pronoun. Third-person singular pronouns, he, she, it. Third-person plural pronouns, they, them, theirs. But in English, by rule, we only have one second-person pronoun, you and your. Now, I was contemplating this. I don't recall if it was this morning or, or if it was this afternoon, uh, but I was contemplating this, and I realized that in certain parts of the country, my wife bearing witness to this from her, her, her childhood and her, her growing up in the South, in certain parts of the country, we have, in fact, added a second-person singular and a second-person plural pronoun, so that if you go down South, if someone's talking to one person, they'll say you. If someone's talking to a group, they'll say y'all. 
right? And in that y'all, we find that there is an implicit second person plural pronoun uh, talking to one person or talking to a group of people. But as far as the official English language grow, uh, goes, we only have a singular second person, uh, which and I don't mean singular as if we can only talk to one person. We only have, we have one exclusive second person pronoun, generally speaking, and that is you and your. But by the time of Koine Greek, by the time of the Greek that the, the, the text was written in, uh, we have a second person singular pronoun indicating that an address was to one single person. And then we have a second person plural pronoun indicating that an address is to multiple people. And there are several places in the scripture where this actually is relevant. Uh, I often take you to a place in Isaiah and I take you to a place in John, early in the book of John, uh, to show you that if you're wondering about those things, come see me and we can talk through them uh, in another forum. Now, our King James translators did a, a good job of attempting to reflect into English various elements of the Greek. And one of the ways that you see that is actually related to this idea of Greek being a gendered language. A gendered language is not nearly as dependent upon word order as a non-gendered language because since languages will share and even inherit genders from one another in order to show that they relate to each other in a sentence, they can actually put those words basically anywhere they want in a sentence and those words can fit. Whereas English is very important that we have a generalized structure of uh, of um, subject, verb, complement, right? Subject, verb, complement. And, and that structure is important. That's why sometimes the King James sounds a little bit weird because uh, the, the translators will use the, the fullest extent of the English language to kind of modify that structure a little bit. And sometimes they'll put the verb first or they'll put the complements first. And in doing so, it sounds very strange to us. It makes it sound different. But what the King James translators were actually attempting to do is they were attempting to reflect as accurately as possible, even the word order of the Greek. Now, for somebody who doesn't know Greek, that may not necessarily help them much as it relates to reading and study. But for someone like me, when I read uh, the text, because I understand Greek and I'm familiar with the Greek language, I can see in that structure, in the way that the King James translators translated, a measure of Greek structure. And that actually does give me insight without having to go back to the original languages, without having to dig out my, my Greek Bible or, or, or work into my study materials. I can actually see a little bit of what's happening behind the scenes. And so that's kind of how, how the King James translators handle, handled the, the nature of, of structure, sentence structure, and, and how gender plays in. But we also find that pronouns play into this. The King James translators wanted to reflect, use the English language to reflect both second person singular and second person plural pronouns. To that end, they used the, thou, and thine. They didn't just use those to sound old or because that's what old English sounded like. We see that they used it specifically to be more accurate with the text. So in your King James Bible, when you see a thee, a thou, a thy, or a thine in the text, we know that the Greek pronoun underneath it is second person singular, speaking to one person. When we see a you, your, or ye, we know that the Greek pronoun underneath it is second person plural, speaking to more than one person. So that as we consider 1 John chapter 1, verse 3, we find that John is 
and some group of companions, right? And we would presume that this group of companions is those who not just were with John physically, but those who had also experienced the fullness of eternal life. And you'll understand what we mean by the end of this message about that. That this group, we, represented by John, is writing to another group of people, you, about how they can join the companionship or the fellowship of those who are experiencing the fullness of eternal life. And you say, okay, so is that what this fellowship is in 1 John chapter 1, verse 3? Well, yes. The fellowship among those who have seen with their eyes, who have looked upon and who have handled with their hands and bear witness to the power, the fullness of eternal life. Those unto whom John wrote had likely never met Jesus in the flesh, just like you and I have never met Jesus in the flesh. But John had met Jesus in the flesh, right? And this is where we see another parallel between the gospel of John and the beginning of 1 John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God, John wrote. And the gospel of John is a firsthand eyewitness account of John's interactions with Jesus Christ himself. But the people unto whom he's writing in 1 John presumably had never met the living Christ. They had never met Jesus Christ themselves in the same way you and I have not met Jesus Christ ourselves. However, what John is saying in 1 John is that even though you have never, your eyes have not seen and your hands have not handled the word of life himself, that does not mean that your eyes cannot see and your hands cannot handle the eternal life of which the word of life pertaining to the word of life. And this is why the we, represented by John, was writing to the you, his readers, including us. John is writing to them so that they can join the fellowship of those who can say with all clarity and confidence that they too can bear witness of the fullness of eternal life. Now, in our context, we don't know exactly what this means just yet. Say, Pastor, what are you, what are you, what are you getting at? Well, our most basic and natural assumption would be that this means that John is writing to a group of people encouraging them to accept Jesus as their saviors, right? After all, isn't that what eternal life is? Only partly. And this is, this is what we're getting at. This is where we're going in 1 John. This is where 1 John is going to go. Eternal life is not just something that we gain. It's something that we have. So as far as gaining eternal life, John was very clear in the gospel of John what that looks like. Jesus said it in John chapter three, verses 16 through 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. Jesus made it quite plain that eternal life is gained by believing in him. And that when one has believed, he passes from a state of already condemned to a state of not condemned. And through this, he will not perish, but have everlasting life. This is 
salvation. And this would be our first and natural assumption about the content of 1 John, right? Okay, Jesus, uh, John is saying that we've handled, we've tasted, we've experienced uh, something, and we want you to experience it as well. And then he says that thing which we have handled, which we have seen, which we testify of is eternal life, and we want you to have fellowship with us in eternal life. Well, pastor, isn't John saying, come and accept Jesus Christ as Savior? Well, that would be our first and our natural assumption, but there are several problems with this theory which become evident as we walk through the text. And in that you got a book sermon last week, you understand already at least a little bit of why this doesn't hold up. First, as we've said, John has already covered this quite plainly in the Gospel of John. So why have a second record of the same? And you say, well, pastor, that's not very, a very good reason. I agree with you. If I were sitting in the seats and I were listening to me and I were listening to me say that the reason why 1 John is not about getting saved is because we already have that in the Gospel of John, I'd say, well, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. We have plenty of repetition in the Scriptures. We have all of the Gospels, which are especially the first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which all tell the same stories in, in generally the same way with perhaps some different emphases and such, but they're the same stuff. So we see there. We also have Ephesians and Colossians, Paul writing to Ephesus, Paul writing to Colossae, but we see a great amount of overlap in their content. We also have uh, 2 Peter chapter 2, where Peter is writing about false teachers and is almost a carbon copy of Jude, debate being whether Jude uh, uh, copied that was from Peter or Peter copied that was from Jude. doesn't really matter to me because they were both from the Holy Spirit. So as far as I'm concerned, the Holy Spirit wrote them both. He just wrote the same thing twice. But other, uh, one way or another, what we have is repetition. So why would it be surprising that there's repetition? But here's the problem with that. It wouldn't be repetition. What it would be would be John telling us that salvation is by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone in the gospel of John, excuse me. And then we would have 1 John telling us that you actually have to do something to be saved, that you have to do something to stay saved, that eternal life is not yours simply by accepting Jesus Christ as your Savior, but eternal life is yours only as you live up to something. And that is a major inconsistency. And that major inconsistency causes us to pause and say, okay, which one is correct? And then the bigger question being, why would John write his gospel where he says very plainly, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. He records it from Jesus' mouth again and again and again. And he says the same thing toward the end in John chapter 20, verse 31, as he gives the purpose for the book. And then go into 1 John and say, here I'm introducing you to how to be saved. And then he gives all of these things that are outside of belief alone, outside of grace alone. That doesn't make sense. And so we have that inconsistency. We also have, and we'll see this as we get into chapter two, the fact that John calls the people unto whom he's writing, my little children. Now, unless he's writing to his biological children, which when we get there, we'll find is extremely unlikely. He's writing to a group of people that he considered to be familial, but weren't biological. And as we look through the text, this is not uncommon as it relates to the church that we call ourselves brothers and sisters in Christ. And not only that, but then when you have someone who has led others to the Lord or who is one who is leading others, discipling them, it is not uncommon that they would use the vernacular of parents and children to get that idea across. And then the final indication that John is not writing about how to be saved 
is the very content itself. I mentioned already the discrepancy between the gospel of John and 1 John as it would relate to the gospel if they were both trying to share the gospel. But in both content and language, what John presents in 1 John is quite different, not just from the gospel, but it comes from a different part of the gospel of John. And we'll emphasize this dramatically next week because next week we're going to spend our entire time in the gospel of John. And what you're going to find is that if we are to parallel the gospel of John and the epistle of 1 John in any way, the epistle of 1 John is paralleled in the gospel of John chapters 13 through 17. I hope, I hope that makes sense. In other words, when we look for the correspondence between what John writes in 1 John and what John wrote in the gospel of John, we don't find the correspondence in John chapters 1 through 12. John chapters 1 through 12 are the chapters where Jesus is talking about darkness and light, belief and unbelief. Those are the chapters that are introducing us to the gospel of Jesus Christ. What 1 John corresponds to is chapters 13 through 17. And those chapters begin in the upper room when Jesus is speaking only to his intimate 12 disciples, when he is telling them what to expect when he's gone, when he's telling them what life will look like, when he tells them, because you are my disciples, wash one another's feet, love one another unconditionally, abide in me, I'm the vine, you are the branches. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Those ideas are the ideas that are par paralleled in 1 John. What does this tell us? What does this mean? What this tells us, by implication at least, is that John is telling us he is elaborating on the teaching of Jesus, not about the gospel unto salvation, but about what life looks like as one who is saved. And that's going to help us understand that what we're talking about here is not how to be saved or how to stay saved. What we're talking about is how to live in the eternal life that we have been given. And of course, we'll talk about this quite a bit more as we continue walking through the text. We're going to, at each checkpoint, at each point where we come to something that would seemingly be controversial, we're going to discuss why, what, what, what it is saying, what it isn't saying, and we're going to take this very seriously because, as I mentioned last time in our book sermon, many people are quite confused by 1 John and its relationship to salvation. Believing that 1 John is saying that if you aren't living in a certain way, then you aren't a Christian, and so causing many people to be spiritually shipwrecked as they are convinced that salvation is beyond their capacity to obtain or to maintain because they don't, that they get confused by the way they're interpreting 1 John and they're stepping outside of salvation by grace alone. Remember what we studied in our last series in Hebrews. We spent a good amount of time talking about grace. That grace is something that uh, exists apart from merit, worth, or obligation. And so if when we're reading through 1 John, we are recognizing things of merit, worth, or obligation, they're not of grace. And if they're not of grace, then they are not salvation because salvation is by grace through faith, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. But what we're going to find as we walk through the text is that this is not at all John's point. And we'll see that through these proofs that we've already spoken as we get there in the text. So when John speaks to his purpose in writing this book, 
He doesn't speak of having eternal life. Jesus covered that in John chapters 1 through 12. But rather, he speaks of fellowship in eternal life, resting in eternal life, communing in eternal life, making full benefit of your eternal life. This is the difference between owning something and actually having the skill necessary to make the most of it. Some of the men and women in this church have some pretty nice equipment, things that anyone can own, but which owning is not enough, which you must have certain skills, practice, understanding, to be able to actually use to its fullest potential. And maybe you've seen this before where someone buys something or they own something and they have it and they're using it, but you know that product much better and you recognize that they do not have the skill or they do not have the training to use it to its fullest potential. I've seen this before a lot with computers. Uh, many of you know that that's where my, my, my training, my skill set originally lies. And I see people and they buy this very expensive, very nice computer and they end up just browsing the web on it. And you sit there and you say, you have this incredible tool at your disposal, but you don't have the training necessary to use it to its fullest potential. You wasted a bunch of money on it because really all you needed was effectively a glorified terminal. And here you are with this huge machine that can do amazing things, but you're not taking advantage of it because you don't have the skills or the training necessary to do so. And this is kind of the idea of what John is saying here. Many people have eternal life, but it takes more than just possession for eternal life to blossom in the life of a believer into Fullness of life, fullness of joy, life and life more abundantly, as Jesus would say. And John says, as he's writing this book, that they have experienced this fullness. They have experienced this blossoming, and they want us to experience it too. They want us, the readers, to join them in the fellowship of those who have known this power, the fellowship that is with them from the Father and the Son, Jesus Christ. And so what is this potential? What is the potential of this eternal life? You have eternal life, so you're not going to hell. You have accepted Jesus Christ as your savior, and so you will experience the resurrection. But what does it mean for this life? What is the potential of eternal life in this life? And verse four is what tells us that. And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. This is the potential of our salvation, the potential of fullness of joy. This is a state which only salvation and having eternal life can open up to a person. You cannot have fullness of joy if you have not first received Christ, if you have not first obtained so great salvation, if you have not first obtained eternal life. But just because you have obtained eternal life does not mean that you have tapped into all of the potential that eternal life affords to you. That must still be opened up in each one of us after the fact. And that's what First John is going to teach us to do. Yes, the very minute I believed on Jesus, uh, the very minute I believed Jesus died on the cross to save me from my sins because I was separated from God through my sin and I cannot get myself to, to heaven. I cannot get myself to Christ. I cannot get myself to righteousness. I need someone else to do that for me. And I recognize that Jesus is the one who died on the cross. He was buried and he rose again the third day to save me from my sins. The very minute I accepted that, I passed from death to life. I'm adopted to the family of God, and through said adoption, I am given the Holy Spirit of God as the earnest of my inheritance. I am freed from the 
bondage of sin. I am made a new creation in Christ. I am buried with him by baptism into death. I am raised to walk in newness of life. But just because I am raised to walk in newness of life doesn't mean I live in that full newness. Just because I am given this gift does not mean that I inherently know how to maximize it, how to live in its fullness. And that is why John is writing that we might have fellowship with those who can testify by experience that the joy that is found in walking in God and Christ is real, that I can have it, that I can see it, that I can bear witness to it, that my eyes can see it, that my hands can handle it, that it can be mine. The gift of eternal life is intended not just to be about the resurrection. It's intended to work for us today in this life so that if we take John's words here at face value, what we find is this. John is writing so that those who are reading may experience these things firsthand. You may never have been able to, because of our time in history, you may never have been able to interact with Jesus Christ himself. To walk with him, to talk with him, we'll do that in the resurrection. But just because you haven't interacted with Jesus Christ does not mean you cannot interact with the life that is in him in fullness. You can experience these things firsthand as well. And when you do, the result will be fullness of joy. And that's what we'll begin to learn about next time. But as we wrap things up today, I want to take everything that I've said and kind of draw it down to three conclusions. Conclusion number one, eternal life is not the same as the afterlife. In that John is saying that this thing which he calls eternal life is also something which they have borne witness to personally. And in that there is no reason whatsoever to assume that John was dead in heaven when he wrote these things, that he was in fact alive, that he had not yet attained unto um, the, well, of course, none of us have attained unto the resurrection until Jesus Christ comes, but he had not yet attained unto heaven, unto the presence of Christ, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord, right? Though he, and we we're assuming that he, he had not attained unto that yet because he's still writing and, and he's still alive and people still know him. We thus understand that when the New Testament speaks of the concept of eternal life, take note of this. When Jesus said in John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. When Jesus spoke of eternal life, when Paul speaks of eternal life, when John speaks of eternal life, it is not only speaking of the afterlife, the resurrection, heaven. It speaks of a manner of living in this life. It speaks of something about this life too, that you can live in eternal life today because life is, eternal life is not just about the next life. It is about a new life. And if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior... Buried with him by baptism into death, raised to walk in newness of life. You already have that life. You are called to already live in that life. You can live in eternal life today. The Christian life is not by any means just a holding pattern until we die and get to go into eternal life. Eternal life begins in this life. Eternal life begins in this time. Eternal life is in this place. And then it continues into the resurrection. And of course, the natural and next implication then is this. 
And we will not so much consider this in 1 John. We spend a good time in our Hebrew series considering it. This life is not just something that we do. It's not just a thing that we have to endure to get to the life that is to come. The things that we do in this life matter for eternity. And so we should expect to live in eternal life today. And this takes us to our next point. Eternal life is something which the believer can experience today. And if this is the case, that eternal life is not just something to look forward to in the future, but something to embrace today, something not only to live for, but something to live in, well, then I absolutely want it, don't you? I must have it, mustn't you? If you know that you can tap into more potential in this life than you have been for Christ, if you know that your life can be fullness of joy, then why would you settle for anything less? How can I seek anything else but this if I know that this is possible? What urgency and passion fills our hearts to know the fullness of this promise in our own lives. It embodies the declaration of Paul in Philippians chapter 3, that I would count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus our Lord, for whom we have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung that we may win Christ, and be found in him, not having our own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that we may know him." You don't have to wait for heaven to know Christ. But far more than that, you're not supposed to wait until heaven to know Christ, to know this joy. The idea that Christ is before my eyes, Christ is in my thoughts, is not a compulsion to spend my time and my effort and my resources daydreaming of heaven I'm not supposed to live in heaven, stuck in heaven, just biding my time here until I get there. That is not what my eyes and my thoughts being focused on Christ is supposed to do. My eyes and my my thoughts focused on Christ is intended to compel me to spend my time and my effort and my resources in a concerted effort to walk in fellowship with Christ today. And in fact, this is life eternal. Say, Pastor, what do you mean that is life eternal? Well, that's what Jesus says in John 17. Again, we'll be there next week. John 17, 3, Jesus says, and this is life eternal, not the resurrection. And this is life eternal, not one day you'll be in heaven. Jesus said, and this is life eternal, John 17, 3, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Life eternal is not simply being condemned before the throne of judgment. No, excuse me, not being condemned before the throne of judgment. Life eternal is not just the resurrection. Life eternal is this, that you and I might know the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom God has sent. Knowledge of the holy, fellowship with Christ, That is life eternal. That is eternal life. We need to change our understanding of what we believe and what we know eternal life to be. It is not just the resurrection. It is not just the future. It is not just heaven. Eternal life is newness of life that we live in today. You, if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, can live in eternal life today. It'll be the same life. You have already inherited it. You have already received it. Though, 
the redemption of the purchased possession is future. Salvation is future. Adoption is a future event because that happens at the resurrection. But that eternal life is yours today. That is eternal life, that we know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. And not only can we have it today, but we're supposed to have it today. And then finally, as we close, what are its results? Of course, we've said it already. Joy is the evidence of eternal life. How do I know, pastor, when I am living in the fullness of eternal life? How do I know when eternal life, when I have grasped it and when I'm living in that newness of life the way I'm supposed to live in that newness of life? Because you'll have fullness of joy. And so once again, back to John 15, or the gospel of John. This time to John 15, where Jesus said this. Are you seeing the parallels between the gospel of John in John 13 through 17 and 1 John? So Jesus said this in John 15, 11. These things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. And once again, if I were sitting there listening to me, I'd be thinking, and you're perhaps thinking, Pastor, you gave me no context there. Okay, so Jesus says, these things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and your joy may be full. What things? Okay, we'll talk about that next week. I'm going to give you that context, but I don't want you, I don't want to keep you long enough to give you all that context today. So that's what you can look forward to next week. Our first field trip out of the book of 1 John and into John for a couple of weeks to consider the underlying teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ, which compel John's exhortations in this epistle. And we will see just where John's motives rest and from where his purpose flows. But for this week, we are taught in this essential perspective that when Jesus speaks of eternal life and when the apostles spoke of eternal life, eternal life is not just the resurrection, not just heaven. It is fellowship. It is abiding. It is this life too. It is newness of life into which we've been born again by grace through faith. It is to know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. And it's something that you can have today. It's something that you should have today. And it's something that is worth our fullest care, our fullest love, and our fullest devotion. And may we be determined in our hearts to not be satisfied until we have found the fullness of eternal life, life and life more abundantly in our day and in our time. Let's close in prayer. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.